Welcome to the Our Father Stories podcast, where we help ordinary people know and share extraordinary life in Christ. That's our mission at Our Father here in Denver, Colorado, where I'm a pastor. My name is Nate Paragoy, and I'm joined by my co-host and my good friend, Pastor Micah Steiner. Hey, everybody. And today, we're just going to jump right into this incredible conversation. We were so blessed today to have Lorraine Watson, her husband Joe, members of our congregation, share with us the journey that they have been on since Lorraine was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And we use a phrase around here that we borrowed really ultimately from Paul, uh, a life worth imitating. Uh, Paul says, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I'm sure as you listen to this, you're going to find something that's inspiring for you personally as you follow Jesus today and something imitatable as well. We hope you enjoy it and pray that it's a blessing to you today. Hi, I'm Laureen and this is Joe. Uh, we've been members at Our Father for a few years and we live in Highlands Ranch. Why don't you, let's start at the beginning. What's the beginning? A little background. In 2012, Joe and I were hit by a drunk driver in Colorado Springs. And in the trauma bay, they discovered I had a brain tumor. And it was a benign meningioma. It was resected in 2012. It came with complications afterwards that I had to work really hard to overcome. But a meningioma is... Uh, unless it's deep in the brain, is not a, considered a, a life-threatening tumor. And my surgery was only two and a half hours. But it signs you up for a lifetime of MRIs every year. So from 2012, you know, your first MRIs, you're kind of white-knuckling it. But then it gets to be just another thing you do once a year. And I trotted in. I skipped 20 because of COVID. We were living in Boston, and I walked in for an MRI on March 26, 2021. And I even joked with the tech. She's like, what are you here for? And I'm like, to make certain that this tumor hasn't come back with friends. And we laughed, and I fully expected nothing but the all clear. And one hour later, I received a phone call that nobody wants to receive. And it was my neurologist, a wonderful woman named Dr. Carolyn Bernstein. And she said, Lauren, I'm on vacation. I wish I was in my office holding your hand to tell you this news. They have discovered you have a glio in your brain. What you need to know is that I had a cousin who was my same age, two weeks apart, who's been gone 10 years from a glioblastoma, and his father died from one. So some people hear this and they have no idea, what is this? I know what it is. So then we were on this crazy roller coaster of being sent to specialist in the first one we saw, he's very renowned, who I'm going back to Boston to see. And he said, I don't think this thing is a grade four, which is the death sentence. He said, I really believe it's a grade two. So first you go from despair to, okay, it's bad, but not that bad. And we start the plan for resecting it. But first it has to be biopsied. May 19th, it was biopsied by a young gun, uh, neurosurgeon who told me I will not believe it's a two until I sit my own two eyes. So he gets the pathology report. I open my eyes in the surgical recovery room and he's standing over me and he said, hey, Lorraine, it's a grade two. Big sigh of relief. But we have to do genetics. That's the little kicker there. We have to do the genetics. The genetics will be back in two weeks. We start planning when we're going to remove this thing from my brain. We start talking about treatment protocols. It's still serious but it's way, way different prognosis. Five to 15 years is the average lifespan with the grade two. So my genetics stall, we're trying to plan surgery, two weeks, they're not there. And the Holy Spirit starts telling me, this is gonna be bad. Mm. And I wrestled like I have never wrestled in the two weeks until I got the word. I just kept praying, Lord, why do I feel most certain that this is bad news. Everything has indicated it would be okay. And it was just this agony. And on June 25th, my son-in-law's birthday, Dr. David Reardon called and told me, the genetics came back. You have the most aggressive brain tumor there is, and your genetic markers are the worst. You have a year to year and a half. Uh, 
you need to start having your brain radiated. There's this chemo. I mean, it just, it was, they're not words to describe what that phone call was like. That your brain just feels, and your emotions are so, it's in turmoil because you've been up and you've been down and you've been sideways. And so that was the beginning of walking it out to here. And in those first days, I can say were some of the darkest I've ever lived through, that I really had a crisis of, are you who you say you are? Are you there? Are the scriptures true? Do you really know my comings and my goings? Is this really the path you've given me to walk? And it was just agony as I felt like I was adrift at sea and I was telling my children and we were trying to figure out what comes next and you 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 kind of have this idea that you're going to just die immediate <laughs> and here I am you know I've exceeded all expectations but uh, it was very destabilizing when the diagnosis first came I was thinking to myself I remember you you being in church after not seeing you for some time because you guys had moved further from Oklahoma and I remember seeing you and Nate speaking in the front of church, and I said, "Oh, Lorraine's back." Uh, was that was that did, were you back at that point for good or? No, I came back. This is what ended up happening: is I, I I came back to visit, and I think I was waiting still for results at that time. I came here. I actually spent that two weeks waiting time. I came here to visit my daughter, so that put me back in worship here. And I remember sharing with you where I was at in the process, but I was back in Boston when we finally found out. But it definitely, I remember that Sunday of being pretty emotional because it's like, again, I, I can't explain to you why I knew, but it was the weirdest thing that I did know. Like when he called, it confirmed what I'd felt like was going to happen. And if you were to read it from a medical standpoint, there was nothing that ever indicated that. Huh. So, so God preparing you for a difficult news, and you shared that you're, you're crying out to God, you know, questioning the promises of God that you know, you've known your whole life. What was your process after those first two weeks of shock? When did you start to get more comfortable with the diagnosis, if that's the right word, or... The first part that made a difference is we finally settled on what my treatment was going to be. And your treatment is, it's grueling. You wear this tight, form-fitting mask. Your head is literally snapped down on a board. And you deal with these machines whirling all around you. And then 60-some-odd seconds on one side and 20 seconds of this high-pitched sound on the other. And you know they're, they're radiating your brain. And in that process, you're at the hospital every single day. And I just saw a couple of things happened. One is our son walked away from his job, flew up to Massachusetts, and signed on to take me because Joe was still working full-time as much as he could. Our other daughter and son, they walked away from their life in Michigan and showed up. So the troops show up in mass. And... So you don't feel so alone in it. As a military family, we have friends, but not this not deep community. We've been there a couple of years. So the first step was accepting what was going to happen. The second step was somewhere along the line, I felt like the Lord said to me, I want you to walk this out with an attitude of gratitude. And I had many, many people in my care. I mean, it was a full-time job. You walk into a radiation neuro suite with all these people laying you and positioning you and fixing the machines and lab work all the time and doctor after doctor visits. I mean, it's indescribable. So I'm interacting with, on a minimum, probably 10 people a day as I walk in that hospital. And I just felt the Lord pushing me on the back. I want you to be different. And it became like I looked forward to seeing them. It became a joy. They knew as soon as I walked in the door that Christian music was going to be put on the speakers. They would ask questions. Every single person in the radiation suite lost someone to cancer. 
they tended to my doubts and my pain. And there was never a day that I did not tell them I so appreciate you. And so you go through these 40 days, and it's a big deal. You get to ring this gong, and they all line the hallways, and they cheer that you've made it through radiation. At the same time you're doing radiation, you're doing chemo, and I, I, I'll come back to that. But when I walked out of radiation for the last time, I felt grief at telling them goodbye. And there was this one man named Andrew, and he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he said, we treat royalty People fly from all over the world to come here. And he goes, I want you to know we will never forget you. And I was able to say, I will never forget you, but it's not me you're going to remember. It's the one who loves you and cares about you. And just to share faith, and they all knew, you know, whether they were a person of faith or not. And it was just like, I felt like there was this little whisper, you did well, daughter. You did well. And I almost was lost. I did not go in and see him the next day, you know. And it, but then we turned another corner because I had a massive liver re, uh, reaction to the chemo. And it was very turbulent. I ended up in the hospital, and it was life-threatening. And I felt that same thing again. How are you going to treat others? And that's kind of been my guiding principle through all this, that you can have an attitude of gratitude to God through it all. You know, whether it be the parking attendant at the hospital, whether it be the, the coffee worker that's pouring your coffee, whatever. And I've just kind of embraced that. And I think that that gave me kind of a roadmap. Yeah. Does that? Yeah, I... I, I you know, we have had our own various experiences of suffering um, and, and have, can identify with that a little bit. What I heard you say is, uh, it, I, I hear permission to be angry with God. It seems like that people who suffer, that is a common thing, and it happens. And, and yet God also gives us permission to be angry. Then I heard community. He, he surrounded you with people who were helping you walk you through it. A third thing that I've noticed as I observe how you guys deal with suffering is you're very you're faithful in worship. I, I haven't seen a day you, Sunday you haven't been here. Um, you're in my Bible study right now, which I appreciate, uh, although intimidating to be in Bible study with another pastor, as you know, because Joe takes notes and he's a good theologian. Keeps you on your toes. You got popped, uh, plugged into a missional community, right? Uh, talk about that. How, how has that been something that's been a blessing to you or what, what motivates that? Yeah, because I guess you could have retreated from all these gifts, but you moved toward them. Well, and I, I would say that one of the things that I would want to share that's been crucial is that I am a, my devotional life is well-developed. My life has lended itself to where time in the Word is the way I start. And I actually write devotions right now that I've done this a couple of times, and I'm doing two a day right now. So my time in the morning begins with time in the Word. And I think sometimes we we can become complacent in our faith, that God's a little sprinkling on the day. And, and, and this ride requires hanging on full force. Does that make sense? Yeah. So my time in the Word is what feeds my soul and, and, and gives me hope on days that feel hopeless. And with that comes a need for community. And yet it's an odd thing to show up in your mid-50s first in, in church because, one, people our age are already pretty plugged in. And, you know, you have this sense where you're looking for new friends. And, two, are you looking new friends who are nice to meet you? I'm terminally diagnosed. I mean, that's just a weird place to live. And it's just been this tentative, how do I fit here? And God has been so faithful. There's one one gal here that's we walk once a week, and our relationship has been real, and, and she's a deep lover of God's Word, and it's just been this stepping stone to other relationships. And, and going into missional community and, and going in to it vulnerably, that these I need people who are going to be boots on ground when this gets bad. I am someone who, unless I defy the odds, which God could do that, there will be a day coming that will be ugly and difficult for my children and for my family, and our needs will be great. And so to go into developing relationships, like, are you my people? 
And what I have heard resoundingly is we are your people. We will be there for you. And that's a destabilizing feeling because I don't, I, as a pastor's wife, what do I like to do? Serve, not to be served. And I, I feel like the Lord's humbled that to be able to say, you can be poor and needy and the people of God will be faithful to serve me by serving you. But it is, I'd much rather be on the other side of this, you know what I'm saying? So, but I, I felt, and even I think because of the oddity of the device, people know who I am, people look at me. I, 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 I tried to answer questions that are asked because I think we by nature somehow feel uncomfortable that we're curious. And I can honestly say that not just in missional community, but in Bible study and in worship, there are people that have genuinely offered nothing but kindness and support to us and a very warm welcome. Joe, I'm, I'm curious for, to hear from you too. So this has been a journey you have walked through together. Tell us about your journey as a, as a husband has taken a new chapter. You know, we say at the altar, sickness and in health. I'm sure as a husband that has a new meaning for you. I'm also curious too, you're sitting across from two pastors. Tell us, you know, how is this, you know, caring for your spouse as a pastor and a spouse at the same time? I mean, that's difficult. <laughs> uh, it's always hard to be a husband and a pastor at the same time. And, and that's why, uh, you know, that's why we need a church to go to, you know, because I remember back when I was a parish pastor uh, and I, I used to say, you know, one of the hardest things about being a pastor is you don't have a pastor. And so it's nice having three pastors. <laughs> yeah. as, as we like to say, it takes three of us to be one good pastor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and you're doing a chaplain work now, right? Yes. I'm, a, yeah. I've been a, I'm, a, I'm an active duty Air Force chaplain. I've been doing that for close to 20 years and uh, was a parish pastor for uh, a little over six years before that, before I came on active duty. And, you know, getting ready to retire next year from the Air Force, not from ministry, hopefully, but just from the Air Force. Uh, but as far as Laureen goes, I mean, I, 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 for most of our marriage, I feel like she's had some significant health issues along the way. Would you agree with that? Not this significant. Not this significant, but, but I'm used to, uh, you know, her having some health issues and, and I mean, there was, there were a time in the past where, you know, she had one issue that we thought this can conceivably be a lot worse than it is, but it, it's not so bad now. Uh, this one came along and it was just, uh, it was a big shock. You know, I mean, she talked about the, uh, uh, the genetic testing. Well, they were so shocked by the genetic test that they ran it twice, and that's part of the reason it took so long to get back with us. They wanted to make doubly sure. And so for me, I think it's, you know, it, it, it brings, it, it just brings about a great deal of sadness for me. I mean, we've been married, uh, 29 years now and looking forward to the day when uh, you know I was retired and we would get to do all these wonderful things we were planning on doing and I just don't know you know I don't know what the future holds right now I mean we're all gonna die someday right and unless Jesus comes back first uh, but you know, for her, it seems like sooner than later. Uh, nobody knows when, and that's the crazy thing about this diagnosis is that, you know, if you look at it, if you look at the biopsy under the microscope and look at the MRI, you know, they say grade two, grade two, but no genetics say grade four, which basically what that means is uh, you've got this little time bomb in your head, but nobody can tell you when it's gonna go off, but when it does, it's gonna be bad. So for me, I pray, 
you know, I, I do pray for God's miraculous healing, if that is his will, because I know he can do whatever he wants. But more than that, what I pray is uh, basically for me to be a loving husband and and to give her everything I can give her with whatever God gives me to give her and and to do that with the best of my ability. And, you know, some days are better than others. I'm, I'm by nature way much more introverted than she is. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm good at sitting at home alone. And, you know, going to missional community is not my normal thing to say, oh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. The crazy thing is, though, like we've been going to it and it's like, Oh, I do like this. You know, <laughs> this is good. You know? I do because I think what happens is I need community too. I just, I just, I don't think I'm as self-aware enough to know I need it as much as she is. You know, so when I when I'm into it, you know, it's it's good. So I don't know if I answered your question. I, you did very well. Thank you. I you mentioned some of the things you've been praying for, uh, Lorraine. I'm curious for you, and I'd love to hear scriptures too. Maybe in a minute. Um. You know, Lorraine, what's what's something you've been praying for? What have your prayers been lately? Or maybe how have they changed? I, my prayer life has always been this combination of praying in the moment throughout the day. You know, Lord, help me find these keys. And he faithfully does. I mean, some people think that's, you know, trivial, but it's not to, especially as a, someone who has stayed home. And uh, I've spent hours alone as my children have launched and that sort of thing. And just to pray for whatever the Lord prompts me to, but I the, and I wouldn't say it's changed, except the petition of, Lord, I know that you extended Hezekiah's days. I know that you're in charge of everything. I entrust myself to you. I entrust what's ahead. I pray for courage, for wisdom, for guidance, for direction, to be a good steward of my days, to bring Him glory in whatever it is. That, that he would be merciful to my family when it comes, that he would uh, call me home quickly. I mean, things that you don't normally think you're going to be praying about. But in terms of rejoicing and saying this is the day that the Lord has made, in terms of realizing his mercies are new every single morning, that's not a new revelation for me. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. But, to, but to profess and to believe in the goodness of God, when the data of your life suggest otherwise. Yeah. And to really rest in that these hardships are authored by Him and for us is an active statement of faith. You know, God didn't, it's not up in heaven wringing His hands. And as we sit here and try to speculate on what day He's calling me home, that day was determined before I took my first breath. And so just the reminders of the truths I've already known, but the change would be, I mean, we all are called to live like we're going to die. Yeah. And I have that reminder daily. What, what does that look like for you? The, and maybe it's a, I don't know if it's an attitude change, a lifestyle change. What, what does it look like for you to live every day as if you were dying to quote a country song that I can't think of? <laughs> Tim McGraw, I think. I so. think it's twofold. It's one, to not live every day like I'm dying. Because I feel like that has really been the fiery devils, the fiery darts of the devil, to not, to not look at that as warfare, to combat that with, yes, my days are precious and they're numbered, but so are yours. And to be a good steward, and, and it's been a struggle match. There's lots of our life that's in the thorns and the thistles. It's laundry, it's doctor, all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, Lord, is this what you want me to do? How do I build into things eternal? What What is my legacy going to be? And, you know, it's funny because I vacillate, but I come back around to what Martin Luther said. If I knew I was going to die tomorrow, what would he do today? He'd plant a tree. You know, and what does it mean to plant trees? What does that mean to live you know, to borrow our, our slogan, to be an ordinary person living an extraordinary life as I'm walking every day closer to heaven. That's a, that's a, it's not an easy answer to that question. Some days are really hard. Some days are full of, I'll wake up fearful and I'll be reminding myself, perfect love casts out fear. And, you know, I, I, I mean, just 
pulling scriptures up to combat my own emotional responses. And some days are just days that are sad, you know? It isn't as if our the rest of our life quit happening, that we quit having conflicts or anything else, you yeah. know? So it's like the overlay of conflicts within our family at times, and then this voice, your, your time's numbered. Be careful how you word this to your kid. You don't know. Do you know you, you, does that make sense just to take it all? I don't want to say more serious, but just to be real, to, to evaluate that kind of thing. Yeah. And I have three grandchildren, and one of them's five and a half, almost six, and he's so precocious, and the three-year-old, and she'll be like, she'll announce in her little speech, Gigi's going to die. <laughs> Gigi's going to go to heaven. Oh, no. <laughs> and Elliot struggles. Why, why is Jesus not removing this? Why can't they? He just, I don't want you to go to heaven. I mean, these are not normal conversations that you think you're going to be having. And yet to view them as precious, that God has given me time yeah. to prepare. Does that? I, the, what I'm hoping for, as Nate and I were talking about this, this conversation, is that we, we don't want to beat people up with the law because, you know, you, you can sit here and we can go, you should not take your life for granted, and you should do that. That's going to have like a five-minute effect. I pray that somebody listening to this will have a new appreciation uh, and a new urgency that we've been talking about that a lot at our congregation. There's an urgency in this in this culture, in our lives. Um, I, I want to go home and I want to love my wife better. I want to take your advice, Joe, because um, I don't do it perfect all the time. Um, I want to be a better example for my kids. Like that's that's the kind of thing, not because the law is going to hammer you and destroy you, but because it's actually gospel to to be Jesus to those around us. That's how I want to see it. Well, and I think, too, to to just be aware of how blessed we are. Do you know? I mean, I this GBM community is so, like I'm on the Facebook pages, and it's death all day long and desperation, and I'm going to beat this thing and positivity and diets and vitamins and on and on it goes, and I just get to get off the crazy train and rest in that, that God knows, and He is good even in this diagnosis. And I, I tell people, you know the worst thing that's going to happen to me is I'm going to land in the throne room of heaven. Hmm. The hard part is the goodbyes. Yeah. The hard part is how do we earthly separate ourselves from the fact that we adore our families, we love aspects of our life, and we it's going to be over. You know, that's the real wrestle match of... How do I prepare Elliot, you know, that Gigi won't be here forever and to not take my days from granted? But it's not, I, I would hate for you to think it's a legal thing, a, a legalistic thing. No, that's a, that's a guard for myself because right. I, I can be kind of challenging and kind of legalistic and some stuff like this. Nate, Nate is a good pastor to me to remind me <laughs> to settle down a little bit. Well, and that's one of the things that I was going to discuss was that this stripped me of an identity on many levels and it just did I was in the middle of school I loved it I was we had plans I was going to work as a respiratory therapist and I mean I I really loved it it wasn't like I was doing it because we need the money and it was gone in one phone call and 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 that is something I want to share is that I had this dear sweet professor her name is uh, Patricia Adams and she's a devout Catholic and that woman is known to be a, a tyrant of a teacher. We never saw her soft side. And she reached out to me, and the woman had thousands of people praying for me. Hmm. And it changed. One of the things that changed was an incredible appreciation. You asked how it changed my prayer life. I've become a beggar for the prayers of others. And my relationships continued with this professor as she is still has all these people praying for me. And she told me something one day that I laughed at, but that is is just so true. She said, my goal in life is to have the angels in heaven look at God and say, not her name again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when I hear my name listed in the prayers every week here, there's a great comfort because I know that we're banging on the throne room of heaven, that the Lord is being reminded of me. And there's just some great comfort in that. You know, and, and I and I used to feel kind of embarrassed. Now it's like, will you pray for me? Will you yeah. pray for me? I'm going to Boston. Will you pray for me? <laughs> and there's a rest in knowing the Lord is being reminded about me. 
Tell us about your coin. So this is a dear friend pick it up and you can who hold it. has uh, walked me through some of this. And uh, he had his wife make this and send it to me. And this was especially when I was really in the first months of not doing well. And on the one side, it says, I'm dying from a glioblastoma. And on the other side, it says, but not today. And I love how there's this sun rising. God's mercies are new every morning. And a lot of times, I really have to remind myself, but not today. Hmm. Not today. And it's just been this visible reminder of his thoughtfulness, as well as his wife's skill set. And then just to flip this over and focus on, I have to decide which day I'm going to, what's today landing on? Does that make sense? Yeah. And today, it's not today. And so for that, I'm very grateful. And another reminder of the community that God's blessed you with. That's a, that's a theme I keep hearing you say is the people that are in your life and encouraging you and supporting you. And, and I also would want to share that I feel like I had a conversation with the Lord where I told him, I want to bring you glory in this. I want to die well. If you want me to teach others how to die, then you have to walk this out with me. And that's what I really pray for. And, and God has been so good in unique ways, like not to spend too much time on this, but when I had the first brain surgery on the right side of my brain, I had word con- retrieval problems because I had a neurological event that took some time to recover from. And so when this tumor showed up, they told me it sits on your speech center. As it progresses, you will lose your speech. Well, I think y'all probably know me well enough to know that it'd be a hardship. <laughs> and uh, I said, I don't think my speech is, is left-sided. And they looked at me like she's crazy. And I'm like, no, I think it's right-sided. And I told them why. And they went, huh, we can test that. And they put me in an MRI tube, and they did this functional MRI. It was the weirdest thing where you read, but you don't speak. And they can tell the activity of the brain. And uh, my doctor called me. He goes, you have right-sided speech. And I just, and it's associated with very left-handed people. I'm very left-handed. And so I just think, isn't that gracious of God when he planned what my future was going to have? He knit in my speech in the right side such that I probably won't lose my speech as this progresses. And just 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 a little gift, you know, a gift you never would have appreciated if you weren't sitting where I'm sitting. Yeah, yeah. You said you mentioned you you want to die well. Uh, did you ever watch that documentary on Ignatius that we talked about in that class? I did not y- yet. You got to watch that. This, okay. Uh, Can I just interrupt? Yeah, you sound yeah. very cultured right now. I know. Thank <laughs> you. Documentary on right. Ignatius. Let's uh, let's let I'm that just in. sit out there. All for of the our moment. listeners can't wait to tune into this, and they are very impressed by that you. That guy knows about Ignatius. Who? <laughs> Uh, it's really powerful. It's on the History Channel. It's free. You can watch it. But uh, Ignatius gets arrested for proclaiming the gospel. The town of Antioch blamed him for an earthquake because he wasn't worshiping the gods. And so they said, oh, well, God's punishing uh, Antioch. They they find a scapegoat in Ignatius. He knows he's going to die. Holy Spirit speaks to him, says, you're going to die. And he comes to terms with it. And so he writes these letters and he writes, I think, a total of seven, nine letters that get dispersed all through the Roman Empire as he's on his way to die. Has a couple opportunities to escape death. Uh, people are trying to free him because now he's become famous. And he says, no, God has called me to die. I'm going to die well. And he goes to the arena, and uh, Trajan, the emperor, thinks that this is going to squash Christianity forever because he's going to make this huge spectacle of his death. Uh, dies by martyrdom of a lion. But these letters that got spread out all through the Roman Empire, uh, many historians think that was one of the keys to the spread of Christianity because uh, Christianity provided hope in death. The Romans believed that there was no afterlife, that you just die and that's it. Um, they, they believed that you had to make the most of it, and if you didn't make the most of it, you were a failure to society, failure to humanity. And Ignatius says, no, let me show you this one. Let me show you Jesus who gives you ultimate hope. Really powerful witness, but... I think of that. We, we don't face lions. We don't face persecution, at least yet in our in our country. Many in the world do, but I want that same death. I wanna I want to die well, and you're embodying it and sharing that with so many people now. And I think that's that's an, an Ignatius letter. 
So now we don't have to watch the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I completely yeah. just took five minutes. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> Paraphrase. Uh, save yourself an hour. Well, well, could you share more about that, Lorraine? Like, you said die well. What does that well, look like Well, it's for funny because one of my favorite uh, scriptures long before now is the jars of clay, you know, 2 Corinthians 4, and the idea that we carry around the death of Christ to show the life of Christ. And I just think uh, the other part of that, I mean, there's so much of this. This is one of my very favorite scriptures. But the whole idea, so we do not lose heart, even though we're outwardly wasting away, we're being renewed day by day for these light and momentary troubles, which I often think, Paul, you got to be kidding. This isn't light and momentary. (laughs) uh, It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. So we fix our eyes on what? What is unseen? And I had a dear pastor friend who applied this to my life and said, Lauren, you carry around the death of Christ in a way that I don't know why, but you show the life of Christ. And the idea, not that I'm so great, just that my struggles and my trials and tribulations offend people, and it gives them a chance to get to know how I navigate it. But I think the whole idea, the the thing that is most important is what am I going to look at? And that's uh, what this dear pastor said. He said, uh, if you fix your eyes on what's seen, you're going to lose your mind. It is only by fixing your eyes on what's unseen, which is Jesus, you know, and to know what's coming. And that's been a wrestling match for me because the scriptures don't tell us a lot about heaven. We're, we're told enough to be enticed, but there's not these descriptions that I really wished we had. <laughs> yeah, it's really thin. It is. Yeah. It is. And just so that idea that I am carrying the death of Christ around me to show the life of Christ and that I, this is transient, this is momentary, this is going to be over, this is a vapor, this is a quick ride. And to make the most of that, while realizing that this is going to fade away. And to rest that, you know, not a bird from the air falls to the ground apart from our Heavenly Father, and I'm so much more valuable than a bird. And so it's a daily trusting that His Word is true, that He meets me there, that He hears and answers my prayers according to His Word, that He meets me in the sacrament, of his body and blood shed and broken for me for the forgiveness of sins, that he's in the fellowship of believers. All of that, it's it's like that is what's, that's how I'm doing this thing, and it's the only way. And I can't imagine the fear and loneliness and desperation and anxiety I would be experiencing if it wasn't for the fact of Jesus making me his. That is really where I rest, and that's really... And that it's nothing about me. It's all about him. Yeah. You know, that his gifts have been good. If you could go back and tell yourself something before you got the phone call, maybe it's the, some of the things you just mentioned. You've been talking about dying well. But I'm wondering, like, and for you too, Joe, I'd love to hear, what do you know now? If you could go back in time and tell yourself that person then. There were so many things that captured my emotions that were temporal. Preparing to retire. I mean, all these things. Not bad things, but temporal things. You know, that I I wished... I don't know that I would want to know, because it's a burden to carry, but just to have more peace. Not, does that, I, don't, I don't know if that captures that well but to just rest that there's all these you know i i get confused sometimes is it martha or Ma- mary is it martha that sits at who's Mar- the martha's working right She's the and busy i'm one. a martha and i you know i'm always pointing at the mary she needs to get busy <laughs> and i just wish i'd been more of a mary i wish i'd been like you know what those dishes will wait we're not going to starve to death that that meal's late you know, all the things that consume us. I yeah. wish I'd known that. Huh. How about you, Joe? How would you answer that? Pretty similar to that, but probably more in terms of uh, instead of 
worrying about, oh, I got to balance the checkbook, or yes, I still do that, I'm old, uh, or I have to pay this bill or whatever. I have to do it right now uh, just to just for us to spend more time enjoying each other instead of just doing stuff. Hmm. And, and it's, we've been doing that a lot more lately. I mean, just, just doing simple stuff like sitting, you know, she likes to play this game on her phone and, and she'll say, okay, can you come help me with this one? And I was like, Okay, sure. You know, so. Disclaimer, I've never played a game on my phone my entire life. So it's Yeah, this is a first for her. <laughs> so we just don't do that. And, and you know, I, I feel like that may sound kind of silly, but I think we missed some of just the simple enjoyments of life because we were just on to what needed to be done. And yeah. the list is endless. Yeah. What advice would you give somebody who right now is – maybe where you were at the first two weeks of the, the fatal diagnosis, what, what would you share with them? How would you minister to them? Well, first of all, we're, you'd have to tell me if this person a person of faith versus not, because if you do not have faith, you're already in such deep waters. So to share the sweet gospel with someone, to say, you know, I've been where you're at, and I want you to know I have full confidence of how this ends, and I want you to have that same confidence would be probably the place I would go. But I also feel like you're starting from a deficit. Not that God doesn't meet people in the middle of the death and the dying, because He certainly, certainly does. But I think there's something about, as a believer, saying to prepare for the day that's coming. Whether it's going to be your own death, the death of your husband or your child, to really invest of things of eternity. Hmm. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Can, can I throw an answer in on that one, too? I remember when when we first found out about this, um, you know, I, you, you, you see people all the time who have cancer, and then they, they use terminology like, well, I'm going to beat cancer, or, or if someone died of cancer, they'll say, well, cancer won. And, and I, I started saying, no, w- when Lorene dies, Lorreen won. Because the cancer's gone, but she's still alive. Hmm. It's interesting he should say that. We haven't talked about this in years, but I, my dear stepfather was precious to me. And I sp- stood bedside when he took his last breath from cancer. And uh, I remember thinking... It is finished. And what I remember thinking is cancer thinks it won, but it lost. He won. He's been set free from this body of death, you know. And uh, I know that that will be true for me too. But not today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You guys could have picked a lot of places to live after you moved from Massachusetts. I know you're here because you have kids here, but why did you choose our father? And if I remember right, you were driving here for a while when you were in the area. Say more about that. So in, I, this goes way back. Our daughter, uh, as much as it grieves me, married a missionary's kid. And there was a arm wrestling match over where they were going to land, whether it be in a Lutheran church or more traditional to his roots. And we, I would come up, we lived in Colorado Springs, and I would come up and pick Lutheran churches to attend with them. And it just so happened that Tim Fraker was a vicar with under Pastor Abel at in the Florida church, and he told us you have yeah. to go there. And Tim Fraker's father was my field work pastor when I was in seminary. So I've been friends with their family since 1990. The small Lutheran world connection. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, quick yeah. disclaimer, if you're listening to this and you're like my wife's background who grew up Baptist and you don't know what Lutheran is, we know yeah. that we're all really inbred and this is weird <laughs> if you're listening Not to this. We, we, know that, we know it's a weird thing. It's a all Lutheran these small thing. connections. Yeah, yeah. But go but, ahead, Joe. You were saying? 
So anyway, I was just saying, we know Tim Fraker because he's, who's now a pastor. I knew him when he was a little kid because his father was my field work pastor when I was in seminary. And, and then actually for a while in San Antonio, we were members of uh, Pastor Fraker's church, not Tim, but his dad's. Uh, so. so I started worshiping. I came here and the whole family was captured by it. It became a real discussion of whether they're going to stay here or go somewhere else. So I started worshiping here every time I came to visit. This was years ago. They got, they've been married for... They got married in 20... Not, not 20. Yeah, 2012. So I would, every time I came to town, it became this big joke. Yes, Mom, we know you're going to church at our father. <laughs> I mean, it, it just, I can't explain to you how much it captured me. I literally would get up, the Sunday you're remembering, is I got up and started driving, and I didn't go to Kristen's. I walked into worship before I went. And so I actually had this time of being here several weeks after Kristen's first baby was born and I wept and I told the Lord our father's the carrot you hold in front of me that I can never have and he said you have not because you asked not and I went back home and I'm like what does that mean Lord how do you become a member of a church where you don't even live but Joe is seen as a missionary and their mission board and we had roots where our membership was but we knew we weren't going back there and so we talked about it and prayed about it and then reached out to Pastor Abel and said what do you think about us becoming members so our membership was here yeah, we, for years we became without... members and actually I looked that today we became members officially here in 2018 that's right yeah. before you yeah. even lived in before town before we lived here yeah. so our membership so. was here and we never knew where we were going to retire it was a toss-up between we talked about here, we talked about Texas. What brought us here is our oldest daughter lives here. Nobody else does. Everybody else moved based on my diagnosis. And so we never, ever dreamed that our father would become our church home from this diagnosis. Yeah. But that's really what led to it. So when we came to town, the decision had long been made. We'd been, I'd been coming here every single time I was in town. And if you were to interview my kids, they're like, oh, we're so glad she lives here because we were tired of hearing about that church. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the other part of the story is too, so when, when we were in Massachusetts, so the Air Force is who decides where I go, earthly, right? And, uh, and the military has this thing where if you have a family member who has a terminal diagnosis, which is expected to live two years or less, you can apply for a humanitarian reassignment. So I thought I was originally going to stay in Massachusetts till I retired. But when this came about, I applied for a humanitarian assignment to come here to Buckley Space Force Base because... Our daughter was in Golden, and her sister's in Pueblo. So, and the Air Force said yes. So, we came here. You know, it's, it's funny. God, so God answered your prayer to come here by giving you this diagnosis <laughs> on some level. <laughs> you know, I, I disagree with that. It is an unorthodox way to get your prayer. It sure is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we yeah. But we had talked about retiring in the area anyway because the grandkids were here. It just so happened the diagnosis got us here earlier. Hmm. So. And, and it's a weird thing to be worshiping at a place that you think your funeral will be held. You know, I've had many conversations with Pastor Abel about what does that look like, you know. So, uh, but but not today. Yep. So today I'm thrilled to becoming, you know, going to Oktoberfest on Sunday and all the things that are going on around here, Bible study and just being a part of the community. Lorraine, can I ask a favor that is kind of grim and dark? Um, since I know you can't have the sugars and the, the carbohydrates, <laughs> could I have your beer? Is, I'm, I, by the no. way, I make exceptions. <laughs> no, no, I, I paid for a beer and she's getting it. <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to ask something serious. <laughs> no. no, this is my role. We all, we all know my role in this uh, podcast. <laughs> uh, well, I, you, you, Nate, you, you usually close this out, but, um, I uh, am very grateful for this conversation and it's a blessing to us personally. Uh, and I pray it's a blessing to anybody who listens, but thanks for your vulnerability for uh, listening and, and sharing your story. It's just been, that's been a joy to talk to you guys. 
Thank you. Thanks. It's a joy to be here. Micah, this has been our fourth conversation. And of those fourth so far, this has been my favorite. Uh, Obviously a much more somber conversation, a very real conversation, but wow, what a powerful witness testimony to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, What's your big takeaway? I find it really fascinating that Joe and Loreen know uh, that her days are numbered. You know, we don't know that maybe conceptually, but it's a very real reality, real reality, uh, that they're living with every day and uh, the new perspective that it's given to them. Uh, she talked about dying well. Yeah, that to me was incredible. You know, I, I love like the movies like Braveheart, Gladiator, and I often think of dying well as you've got a sword in your hand and you're giving your life to this big cause. What I heard her saying was dying well to honor the Lord, that she wants every conversation that she has with people that she wants every motivation of her heart to be about Jesus and his love and his grace in this world. And dying well for the sake of Christ is a, is a powerful witness to us. Yeah. I mean, how something is as simple and mundane as, can you help me with this game on my phone? Yeah, yeah. You know, how that has more significance and meaning, those small moments together and in the significant ones, you know, being a grandmother, being a wife, for Joe being uh, her husband, yeah. you know, how that has so much more weight and meaning. The other thing she said, and you and I were talking about this earlier, is the the community, the, the ordinary people of our Father Lutheran Church that have rallied around her and helped her. Uh, tell us more about that. You know, I, this has been true uh, for me in moments of my life. I've been overwhelmed. Uh, folks I know who I've been close to, the sort of um, fork in the road to say, this is sort of going to drive me away or it's going to drive me closer. Uh, even for Christians who say, well, I'll come back to church when uh, I'm less overwhelmed, when things get better. And I've seen in their story a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, as it's called in the New Testament, you know, a deep yearning. I need the church and its gifts and its people more and more. I need the sacrament, the Word of God. She talked even about how her her prayer life and her devotional life had been stronger leading up to this that helped her in this. Uh, It didn't drive her away. It drove her toward yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm inspired to, uh, like she said, to to live that kind of a life that honors Christ, and and I hope and pray that all of you listening as well are inspired by Lorene's story, Joe's story, and that we could, as we say so often, be ordinary people who know and share extraordinary life in Christ. We hope this has helped you. As you listen to this today, for more stories like this, go to ourfatherlutheran.net slash stories.